the power of a godly man. The power of a godly man is a man who walks with God. The power of a godly man is the power of a man who walks with the Lord. I want us to look at that power today. It is the power to lead and to shape a family. It is the power to lead God's people. It is the power to lead in a community. The power of a godly man. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Joshua chapter 24. Book of Joshua chapter 24. As you turn there, allow me to set the stage for the passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at. We've been in a series of messages entitled The Challenges, Facing the Challenges from the book of Joshua. Joshua had taken over from Moses after being mentored by Moses to take charge of the nation of Israel. He was leading them into what was called the promised land. And Joshua was a different type of leader than Moses. Moses was a leader of deliverance. Joshua was a leader in, the, in a military sense. His job was to go in there and to strategize and engage in battle as the Lord directed as they moved through what we know today to be the land of Israel in those days referred to more commonly as the land of Canaan. Joshua has been leading for some time and he's coming down now to the, literally the end of his life, the end of his leadership. And so he gathers the nation of Israel at a place called Shechem. Now, in the Old Testament in particular, every geographic place the people gather has significance to it. They don't just gather in a place. There is significance to the place they gather. And this is, of course, the case with Shechem. Shechem was the place that Abram, years and years and decades ago, had gathered the nation of Israel and said, God is promising you this land. And so they had stood there as the people and began to look at the land that God was giving them. Now they were there to retake that land that had been promised to them so many years ago at Shechem. Abram had built an altar there at Shechem to commemorate God's promise of the land to them. Then following Abram, Jacob had bought land at Shechem. He had built an altar there when he had reconciled with his brother Esau. So Shechem was not only a place of promise, it was also a place of forgiveness and a place of reconciliation in the history of the nation. And then Joshua had earlier brought the people there following the disaster that we saw last week at Ai when the nation of Israel thought that they were going to be able to go and take Ai and because of disobedience and sin in the midst of the people that Achan had participated in. The nation was defeated before Ai, and so he had gathered the people for a time of repentance and renewal at Shechem. And today they gather at Shechem because as Joshua passes off the scene, he's saying to the people, Folks, I want you to know today that you need now in this time of transition, as you will move from my leadership to new leadership, as you will move on in conquering the land, that as you stand here this day, you need to sign the contract with God. That God is committing himself to you. But you need to sign on to him that you will accept the rights and the responsibilities of living in obedience to him as you move into the next phase of where you are. 
And what we're going to see as we move through this chapter is that what Joshua does is he begins with a challenge, and then he will take the people on a sort of a history tour. He will say, I want us to just go back and do a rehearsal of everything that God has done in our lives. Look at our leaders. Look at what God's done. Look at how he's preserved us, provided for us, taken us to where we are now as a nation. And then he's going to conclude that with a challenge that they follow his leadership in committing themselves to follow the Lord. So Joshua 24, beginning with verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel, and there were 12 tribes. The nation was subdivided into 12 tribes. He gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, that is the leadership. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Now you will see this phrase, other gods, come up repeatedly in what Joshua is going to be saying here. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, and led him through all the land of Canaan, and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward... I brought you out. And then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Ammonites. You lived on the other side of the Jordan. I fought with you and gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land. And I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, rose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, Pezrezites, the Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, the Hittites, and the Jebusites. I sort of want to throw the termites in there sometimes when you get into all those ites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, in cities that you had not built, and you dwelt in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, 
choose this day whom you will serve. Now notice what Joshua is doing. He is pressing for an immediate decision that they are to make. Choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Again, notice the definitive decision he's stating there. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve our other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the people, the Ammonites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. And they go on to recommit themselves to the Lord. Now the power of a godly man, Joshua role modeled this power, influence and impact before the nation as a leader. Where does this power begin? Well, the power comes when a man chooses to throw out the idols or the false gods in his life. It begins when a man chooses to throw out the false gods or the false idols in his life. You will notice repeatedly in this passage that Joshua makes reference to the false gods. Israel had had a whole lot of trouble for a long time with idol worship. They kept importing all these gods that they saw their neighbors had into their lives. Even though God came to them through Moses and said, You shall have no other gods before me. They just kept falling in to these false gods over and over and over again. And so Joshua brings them this day and he says, You know, we've had a problem with this. You repeatedly have fallen in to taking these false gods on. And you've got to make a decision. You've got to make a decision today. Are you going to go back and do what your forefathers did? Are you going to look around at Egypt and the Ammonites, etc., all the ites that are around you and adopt their gods into your life? Or are you going to settle it today that you're going to serve the Lord God and serve Him only? And Joshua looks at the people and he says, I want you to understand that as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to us, but in that day it was a big deal because he's saying before the nation, I'm not going to serve these other gods. I'm going to serve the Lord God and him only. Now, why did Israel have such a problem with all these different gods? You know, we look back on it and we say they should have had enough sense not to do something like that. But before we're too apt to criticize Israel, we tend to fall into the same trap. So why was it that way? Let me give you four reasons that they tended to fall into idol worship over and over again. Number one, in that day and age, the false gods were understood to have authority and power in their particular exclusive geographic area. For example, the gods of Egypt were understood to have power in Egypt. But if you left Egypt and went north into what we know today as the Middle East, they were considered to lose power as you got out of Egypt. Same thing with the Ammonites, etc. You will notice that these gods are constantly identified with people groups, all the different Ike groups. 
Well, wherever those people settled, that's where their gods were considered to have power. But if you got out of their territory, the gods were weakened at that point, or they just weren't present at all. So that's the reason that they begin to look at their gods and understood their gods as being very much local, geographic, in terms of the power that they had. Now, why is that significant? Because Israel had been a nomadic people. Up to this point, they didn't have a land. So how in the world could they know that they could trust God to be present and to be powerful if you don't have a land for your God to be powerful in? They were just settling the land. Well, they hadn't really taken full possession of the land. So when they would go into the land, for example, of the Ammonites, it was a temptation to say, well, you know, God must not be present in this land because what we've heard from all our neighbors and what the culture around us is teaching us is that the God that happens to be of the particular group of people in this geographic area, he's powerful there. So we don't know if Jehovah God is really powerful over here where the Ammonites are, over here in Jericho, because, you know, gods are only powerful in certain geographic areas. And we don't really have a land. We're just getting into a land. This also means that Jehovah God is going to have to share the land with the God of the Ammonites. So if he's got to share the land, how powerful is God going to be? See, what they were doing is they were taking the understanding of God that their neighbors had and superimposing it in on the Lord God. Instead of letting God show them and teach them how powerful he was and that he was not bound by a geographic piece of property, that he was as powerful in Egypt as he was in Israel, as he was in anywhere in the world. His power was as powerful anywhere, any time of the day. He was not limited anywhere. They were letting their neighbors teach them about God instead of God teaching them about how powerful he was. Now, how does that apply to us today? How many times do we fall into the trap that God is powerful on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock in a room like this, but man, on Monday morning at school or in the office, we don't know that God's ran, let alone doing anything. How many times do we tend to look and say, you know, God was really moving in the 1950s, or God was really moving in the 1980s, but in 2020, well, I'm not so sure God is as powerful. He doesn't seem to be as active as he used to be. He doesn't seem to be saving people. It's not like the good old days, when God really moved back in the good old days, and God really did things back then, or God really did things back in leadership. Last night I was on YouTube. That's the way I sort of relax before I go to bed, is get on YouTube and watch some stuff. And I was you know, just sort of screening through YouTube, and I got on, I uh, wanted to see some stuff from Red Time Music out of Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, and managed to get on a video there that they did right after Dr. Falwell died on the 50-year history of Thomas Road and Liberty University, and as I clicked that on, my sort of took me down a trip down memory lane, because uh, I was part of that back in the 80s, and watching Liberty be founded, and, and, and watching it grow in those early buildings, and all of that, and my mind began to wander back to those days, and I thought, man, how exciting it was. We were watching those dorms grow up. We used to joke that the mud in Lynchburg sprang dormitories, etc., because the stuff was coming up all the time. And all those memories rolled back, and it was tending to say, man, I wish I could go back to those days. I wish I could see that. I wish we had those kind of leaders again. But then I had to remind myself, the same God of 1980 is the same God of 2020. The same God who pulled off miracles then is the same God who pulls off miracles now. And we fight the temptation 
just do the same thing that the Israelites did to limit God to specific places and to specific times. Second reason they fell into worshiping those gods, it was a popular thing to do. You know, I read all those ites to you. All those ites were worshiping God, worshiping all their gods. And so when they moved into those lands, the popular thing to do was just pick up what everybody else was doing and follow their lead and do what they were doing. Last week I talked about how Achan took those things and buried them in the back of his tent. And I asked the question, what have we got buried in our lives that needs to get dug up and we need to get rid of? Well, a lot of times the things that we bury in our lives are the things that the culture tells us is okay. It's okay to talk a certain way. It's okay to look and view stuff that we know we have no business looking at viewing at. It's okay to act this way. It's okay to fall into the same sin because everybody's doing it. And it's popular. And it's accepted. And so we tend to look around at the gods that are in our culture today and adopt those gods into our lives if we are not careful. It's okay to go around with an attitude all the time because everybody got an attitude all of the time. You know, on and on and on the gods go that we can adopt into our lives. And that was one of the reasons they fell into it. It was popular. Third, it was very fascinating if you do a study of the gods of the ancient world because all those gods had a powerful psychological aspect to them. And it's that they appealed to human nature and specifically to sinful human nature. That was part of their attraction. Astere was a false god and was worshipped by cultic prostitution. And the reason that false god was so popular is very obvious. It just cued right on in to a person's lustful nature. So who doesn't want to, you know, worship the false god when it, it involved that? The Israelites were going into lands and they were trying to learn how to farm land. They had gone from being nomadic now to being farmers. And this was brand new to them. Well, there were a lot of gods of fertility that were worshipped by their neighbors because they believed that if they worshipped these gods, they would get rain in seasons and they could grow crops, etc., etc. So it was easy to say, well, let's start worshipping these gods of fertility because they'll help the land grow. One of the other things that they did was they would take elements of different aspects of the false gods of their neighbors and mix them in with the worship of the Lord God. So, for example, they would take Balaam, or the god Baal, and take elements of Baal worship, mix it in, it's called syncretism, they would mix it in with the worship of the Lord God, and by mixing it in there together, they sort of came up with their own religion to worship God. The temptation is always there to worship Idols in our lives because they appeal to our sinful nature. Whatever is in our culture that appeals to our sinful nature, it's so easy to do there. Fourth reason. God is so difficult to understand, and we struggle to wrap our minds around Him. God is sometimes so difficult to understand, and we struggle to wrap our minds around Him. The one nice thing about all these false gods is that they were pretty easy to understand. They were pretty easy to figure out. 
they pretty much made sense the way they operate. But Jehovah God, man, he was hard to understand. Every time Israel thought they had him figured out, they didn't have him figured out. And the easy thing was just to throw your hands up in the air and say, God, I cannot figure you out. You don't conform to the way I want you to be. So I'd rather have a God in my life who conforms to me and I can understand than trying to worship and serve a God who seems so distant, so strange, and so weird, and so hard to wrap my mind around. And how many of us do the same thing with God? We struggle with Him because He seems so difficult and hard to figure out sometimes. And the easy thing is for me to conceptualize and put together God as I feel comfortable with Him instead of constantly, rigorously studying His Word to understand and figure Him out. As He really is and as He presents Himself with the understanding that that's always going to be a growing, developing process with us. He's so difficult. One of the major things that I find with folks, and I've struggled with this myself, is why does God allow pain? Why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow good people to suffer and to have tremendous losses in their lives? I mean, it is so easy. It's so easy to come up with a God who just steps in and clicks and does away with the pain and the suffering. Man, how many of us want a God who would do that and who does that? And a lot of times we try to configurate God to be like that. And then what happens when God doesn't conform to that? We chuck God. In reality, what we did is we chucked a God who never existed in the first place. And so wrestling with God, the Lord, I don't understand why you're allowing this, but I'm going to keep on asking the questions. I'm going to keep on struggling. I'm going to keep on, and I may not ever get all the answers, but I'm going to stay after it. And if you struggle with that, which all of us do, let me just throw one thing that may help you in that struggle. I don't understand why God allows pain, and I don't understand why God allows suffering, but I do understand this, that he went through tremendous pain and suffering in the loss and death of his son. That he did choose through his son to step into the crucible of suffering and loss and pain. I believe one of the reasons that the world went dark when Jesus said it is finished on the cross is God, in that darkness, was agonizing over watching what his son was going through and had just gone through. We have to make a decision to throw out the false gods and the idols in our lives. If we're going to be men of God. Second, power comes as a man walks with God. Notice verse 13. The Lord said, I gave you a land on which you had not labored. And cities that you had not built. And you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. God is saying to Joshua, to the nation, look at what I have done with you and for you. I have walked with you. Joshua had walked with the Lord every step of the way. How had he done that? Why had he done that? Because Joshua had been mentored, coached, fathered by Moses. 
The story of Joshua starts with the story of Moses. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse 10. At the end of Moses' life, this is how he's described. And there has not risen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. And then notice this second half of this verse. Whom the Lord knew face to face. Now, the term face, as it's used in the Old Testament, you hear a lot of references to the face of God, does not refer to a physical face like you and I have. The idea of the face is all of our emotions are on our face. You know, when we're sad, when we're happy, etc. What do we do? We read each other's faces to figure it out. But when it says that God, the Lord knew Moses face to face, it was the idea that the Lord looked into all that Moses was and saw all that Moses was, and Moses looked into God and saw and experienced who the Lord God was. So they knew each other face to face. Now catch this. Moses walks with God, and he knows God face to face. And then as Moses is moving towards the end of his life, God comes to him and says, Moses... The day's going to come when I'm going to pass, you're going to pass off the scene. I've got this young guy over here named Joshua, and he's going to take over for you. But I want you to take Joshua, and I want you to mentor him, and I want you to coach him, and I want you to father him, and I want you to pour who you are into Joshua. So when the day comes that you pass off the scene, that young man will be ready to step up and lead Israel in the direction that I want them to go because you've mentored them, coached them, etc. Who's coaching Joshua? Moses, who knew the Lord face to face. If there had not been a Moses, there would never have been a Joshua. I want to say that again. If there had never been a Moses, there would never have been a Joshua. Because Moses poured himself into Joshua. And when Joshua steps up and takes leadership of the nation, the well of his life is full because of what Moses had done in his life. Dr. Adrian Rogers, who for so many years pastored the Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, used to say, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. What is down in the well comes up in the bucket. And what has been placed into the well of our lives is what's going to come up in the bucket when people interface with us. Folks, I cannot stress this enough. The reason today we are so short of Joshua's is because we've had so few Moses providing leadership. I believe the greatest crisis facing our nation today is fatherlessness. I know a lot of other things catch the attention of the news media. But I really believe the greatest crisis that we're facing today in America is fatherlessness. I believe it fuels and feeds all the other crises that we're facing. A lack of a dad involved in a young man's life and in his family leads to a lack of respect and a lack of self-respect. It leads to a loss of a sense of dignity. It leads to the failure to understand a work ethic. 
to have a settled spirit, it leads to restlessness. When I was pastoring in South Norfolk, I sat down with a group of young men that I was working with one day, and I said, can you tell me what the appeal of a gang is? And it was fascinating what they said to me. They said, the gang is your family. And the gang leader is like your big brother. And what they were telling me is the gang is family because you don't have a family. We need men to step up and mentor our young men. We need young men to realize that they need to be mentored. The Joshua's of one generation will eventually become the Moseses of the next generation. But if there is a failure to develop and to mentor our young men, then we're not going to have leadership. In the next generation. Now follow me on this. When Moses. Took on Joshua. The first thing that. Moses did. Was mentor and teach Joshua. How to be a man of God. How to know the Lord. Love the Lord. Serve the Lord. Follow the Lord. He didn't teach him first. How to be a leader of Israel. He taught him first. How to be a man of God. Then he taught him how to be the husband he was to be to his wife. Then Moses taught him how to be a dad to his children. And then he taught him how to be a leader in Israel. You see, when Joshua stood before the nation of Israel and said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It was because Moses had taught him, Joshua, you got to be a man of God first. Then you got to be a man of God in your family. And then you will be a leader to the nation of Israel. But you can't jump from here over to here. If you're not who you're to be with your family first, you can hang it up on ever leading the people of God. You start with yourself. And then you lead your family. And then you lead the nation. So what we need and what we've got to have is men who walk with God, who take on younger guys and teach them first how to be men of God. Guys, if we are men of God first, if we will see to it that we are walking with the Lord Jesus and loving the Lord Jesus and growing in our relationship with the Lord Jesus... Then we will take that into our marriages. Then we will take that into parenting. Then we will take that walk of the Lord into the church and into the community. But if we're not men of God first, walking with God first, it's not going to happen anywhere else in our lives. We're not going to be the kind of leaders our families need if we don't walk with the Lord to ourselves to begin with. We don't just need good men. We need men of God. We need godly men who will walk with him. And notice with Joshua, verse 15, that the power of a man of God is choosing to be a servant of the Lord. Notice what Joshua says in verse 15. 
But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Notice the verb. We will serve the Lord. He did not say, as for me and my house, we will believe in the Lord. He said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's a difference between believing and serving. You see, when I say, I'm going to believe in the Lord. And I say, God, I believe you exist. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross and rose again from the dead. And that's nice and that's wonderful and you just ought to stay up there. But when I say to him, Lord, I will serve you. That I am saying that I am taking who I am and I am submitting it to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That he has become and is my authority in my life. That his word is my guide. I don't just believe the Bible is the word of God. I live under the authority of the word of God. I read the word and I study the word so that I can live by the word. I grew up in a generation where we had Bibles all over our houses. And they often did a great job of collecting dust. We felt good about the fact that we had the Bible and we believed in the Bible, but that didn't always translate into we lived the Bible. When I serve the Lord, I don't just believe the Bible is the Word of God. I act like it is the Word of God, and I live under the authority of the Word of God. He says, choose you this day who you will serve. Now, how do you make that choice? Verse 14, he tells them, you've got to fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to be in reverential awe of Him. To be humble before Him. To submit to Him. To recognize that He is God and I am not. To live my life as an intentional response to His Lordship. Let me say that again. To live my life as an intentional response to His Lordship. And that begins with our integrity. With who we are on the inside. Lord, you are Lord of all of me. Lord, you are Lord of anything that I got buried in the back of my tent. You are Lord of me when nobody else knows, sees what I'm thinking and what I'm doing. Jesus, you are Lord not just on Sunday morning, but you're going to be Lord of my life 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Jesus, I'm going to live under your lordship. A man is no better to his family than he is first alone with God. A man is no better to his family than he is first alone with God. Guys, who we are alone with God is who we are going to be with our families, in our community, in our church, etc., And so I want to conclude today with some questions for us. When it says that we will serve the Lord, Joshua was saying, the Lord is in charge of my life. He's got control of my life. 
Who is in control of our lives? Who's really in charge of our lives? And is there anything that we are putting off doing that God has been telling us you need to do that? Is there anything we've been putting off doing that the Lord has been telling us I want you to do that. It may take courage. may take faith. Probably will. But in order to be God's man, i got to choose to do that. Guys, let me say one final thing to you. It will require courage to be who God wants you to be and do what God wants you to do. It will not come easy. It will require courage. But it will be well worth the decision to follow his obedience. Let's pray. What is it that God is calling you to do? And who is in control? Of our lives. Their heads bowed and our eyes closed. I want to give you a moment in silent prayer to contemplate who's in charge of our lives and what has He been asking us to do. And if you're listening today, whether it's here in this room or whatever social media platform or the radio, I want to invite you to take the first step of obedience and say to Jesus, Lord Jesus, this day, I choose to follow you, to belong to you. Jesus, I will serve you. And if you pray that prayer to him, he loves you. He accepts you. He takes us no matter how messed up we are and begins to do his wonderful work in us. Let us continue to worship him as our worship leaders lead us right now in worshiping the Lord.